0: Where is your life headed? I think that's the most important question that you could ask yourself right now. And I mean that, for children in here, where is your life headed? to really consider, even as young as you are, the end. I won't be young forever. What does my life look like when all of this is over? I mean that for those of you who are elderly. I'm going to let you determine who's in that group. I'm not even going to tell you. What does this look like when it's all over? Where is my life headed? Everyone in between. Young or old, Christian or non Christian, what does my life, where is it going? Where is this whole thing headed? Now, there are good and bad ways to answer that question. There are right and wrong ways to answer that question. I don't ask that question just in a postmodern, everybody's right, nobody's wrong kind of sense. That whatever you get together and workshop and determine is going to happen is right. I don't mean it that way. There are right and wrong answers to this. But really, it's to say, what are you telling yourself right now is the outcome of your life. Another way of phrasing that is, when you die... And it's all over. What happens? You have to figure out before any of this can mean anything you have to figure out how you answer that question. When I die and all of this is over what happens? Am I Worm food? That might be how the atheist would answer the question. When all of it's over and and I die, that's it. I go into the grave and everything ends for me. But it's important to ask yourself, what do I think? What is the outcome of my life? been looking at 1 Samuel, and we get to the very last chapter in 1 Samuel before we begin 2 Samuel next week. And you'll recall that Saul is facing rejection for all of his disobedience. You'll remember just a few chapters ago, back in chapter 13, he was told, he had a standing order, Saul, any time you go to battle... You need to wait seven days and I, Samuel, will come to you and consecrate the army and prepare them for battle. He was told, you you have to wait the seven days. And Saul has his men ready for battle and the Philistines are encroaching upon him and he is panicking and all of his men are running and Samuel is running late and he needs to get this army consecrated so we can get on with the battle, and I'm losing men left and right, and so what am I going to do? He waits the bare minimum of seven days and says, Bring me the calf. I'm going to do this myself. He's told to wait and he doesn't. He consecrates the army or attempts to himself. And then just as he does that, he sees Samuel walking down the road and he goes out to meet him and he says, you, you're never going to believe this. You're going to think this is so funny. Oh, I went ahead and consecrated the army for you. He was told to wait and he didn't. Then two chapters later, Saul was told by Samuel, you go into the Amalekites and you judge them burn their entire civilization down to the ground. They are facing judgment for God. You see, God is playing the role of judge and jury, and Saul is to be the executioner. And Saul goes into the Amalekites, and he decides instead they've got some pretty nice possessions. They've got animals, they've got all kinds of riches and treasures, and they've got a king who seems like a pretty nice fellow. So he takes them all for himself. He's told to burn it to the ground, to play the role of executioner, and he usurps God and decides instead he's going to play the role of judge and jury as well. And for this he is facing rejection. But here we get to the end of the book of 1 Samuel, where Saul is going to face death And it's incumbent upon us to ask the question as we read 31, what is it that we're actually seeing here? What is this story that is in front of us? See, on the surface, it's a very short story. What is it? 13 verses. We've been building up to this moment in 1 Samuel the entire time, and we get here and we get 13 verses on the death of Saul. That's it? And actually, really, all of the rest of it is aftermath except for the first seven verses or so. That's it? That is the longest build-up to the shortest story I think I've ever heard. On the surface, it's a very short story with a 30-chapter setup. Maybe just a little bit further down below the surface, it is a nice pivot into the kingdom of David. David's about to take the throne, and we're going to see that starting in the next chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 1. David's going to take the throne, and he's going to run with it, and there's going to be some build-up to him taking the throne. It's not going to happen immediately, and then honest, the details of his kingdom are relatively short before it becomes an absolute train wreck. So on the surface, it's a a short story with a 30-chapter build-up. Just under the surface is a pivot to David's kingdom that's about to take place. But underneath all of that, it's a tragedy. Underneath all of that, In the details of what's told to us in chapter 31, the author of 1 Samuel is making clear to us that this is nothing more than one of the greatest tragedies that has happened in Israel's history. Every ounce of this passage is weighted with sadness, with tears with anger and bitterness and frustration and depression and all of the things that transpire in this passage. So it's our job to really ask the question, what is happening here? And I think there are at least three things that we're going to see are major things that are being communicated to us in the details of this story, three things that are happening that we are seeing as Saul dies. The first is this is a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Do you notice that it is with stunning speed that the death of of Jonathan is recorded here in these two verses? This is all Jonathan gets. We've seen Jonathan this entire book be as faithful to God and as faithful to David as any person in the kingdom of Israel. And here is the record of his death. Verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Jonathan is not only, his death is not only recorded with stunning speed, but he's lumped in with two of his brothers that are only mentioned like one other time in the entire book, and we never hear anything really else about them. The Philistines struck down Jonathan and his two brothers. Period. The end. Now, David is going to lament Jonathan's death in the next book. And so we're going to get some more details on Jonathan. We're not done with him yet. But, humanly speaking, I just feel like I want more. I want something about Jonathan. Something where the author steps aside and says, Tragedy of tragedies. Man, faithful to God, faithful to David, and faithful to his father, perished. And that's really sad. Don't you just want something about Jonathan here? Something that talks about the impossible situation Jonathan was in. You see this? His dad is the king. His best friend is running from his own father. His father wants to kill his best friend. He's old enough probably to be his best friend's dad. So he sees him something like a son. And yet he has to serve as faithful right-hand man to his tyrannical father and yet, also have covenant loyalty to his best friend. Do you see that impossible situation? And all that merits is Jonathan died with his brothers. There is a quote by Dale Davis, who is a commentator, he wrote a commentary on 1 Samuel. And it's in a series called Focus on the Bible Commentaries. I would highly recommend Focus on the Bible as a commentary series, but more importantly, any commentary in that series by Dale Davis, I would recommend you get. It reads like a book. It's very simple and easy to understand. And he's very straightforward and to the point. But here is what he said about Jonathan's death. Jonathan was nowhere else but in the place Yahweh had assigned to him at the side of his father. Maybe this is not tragic at all. What is tragic about remaining faithfully in the calling God has assigned us? Was it tragic when Jonathan laid aside a kingdom he could not have to enter a kingdom he could not lose. That's a turn of a famous quote by a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. On January 8, 1956, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, and Roger Eudarian lost their lives while attempting to share the gospel with the Wa'arani people. Jim Elliott and his compadres had gone to Ecuador as young men to minister and share the gospel with a tribe of people who had never ever 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 heard the gospel before and they had been down there for not that long and they were circling the area in their plane dropping down gifts hoping to communicate to the people the language in a language they did not speak that we come in peace we mean you no harm and eventually they saw as the gifts were taken That perhaps it meant that the Wa'arani people were willing to receive them into their camp and hear their message of the Gospel of Salvation. And so they landed their plane on the beach. And they walked onto the beach and as they got closer, the Wa'arani people came out of the jungle and with their spears in their hand, pierced their bellies, and killed all five men there on the beach. When we ask the question, where is your life headed? No one thinks their life is going to end that way. You get it? No one does. No one thinks that their life is going to end at the tip of the Spirit. But the reason the question is important is because the events of this life is not what we're asking about. Because you can't answer that question. No one thinks their life is going to end at the tip of the spear. Why ask that question? Why try to determine how my life is going to end? That's not what we're talking about. The question is, what happened right after They closed their eyes in death. That's what matters. That is the question that matters. Because you see, if when they died, they were fish food as their bodies were floated out into the ocean, then to say that their sacrifice was meaningless would be an understatement. They were in their 20s. What a waste. They could have driven cars and had tons of kids and had lots of holidays. They could have climbed the corporate ladder of success. They could have reached the top. They could have seen the United States. They could have progressed through the company. They could have worked their way through middle management. They could have saved up. Quite a nest egg. They could have provided for their children and their grandchildren. They could have had tons of holidays where they invited their grandchildren over and celebrated Christmases and Thanksgivings and all kinds of things. They absolutely missed for this meaningless sacrifice because when they closed their eyes in death, their bodies were floated out to the sea to become fish food and nothing else ever became of them. Boy, what a waste. But what if, when they closed their eyes in death, they opened their eyes before a holy God? And the Lamb, at the right hand of the throne, standing for members of his body, who carried his gospel to the nations, And died. What if that's what happened when they closed their eyes in death? Now all of a sudden, that sacrifice, the life they lived, the brief 20-some years, however long it was, that brief period of time that is called their life on earth, now all of a sudden, that gives all of it meaning, packs it Full of meaning. Now all of a sudden their sacrifice is ultimately meaningful. Nothing in fact could undo its meaning. So here is Jonathan. Dying at the hands of some uncircumcised Philistines. What do you think his answer was when he closed his eyes in death and opened them before a holy God standing on the throne of judgment? Do you think he was satisfied? Do you think he was glad for the way his life ended and all that happened in between? Saul's life and death is a tragedy not merely because of all the things that he did or did not do saul's life and death is a tragedy because of what happened after he died that's the reason his life was a tragedy because he was given commandments back in 13 and 15. He was told to wait. He was told to not sacrifice and wait for Samuel to do it. He was told to go judge the Amalekites and he did not do it. But none of that mattered until he opened his eyes before a living and holy God and he realized what his lifetime of disobedience had cost him. Now, in fairness... I don't know what happened to Saul at that moment. I'm not told. But what I do know and I trust because of all the rest that the Bible tells me, and because because what I've seen to be true, is that if there was ever a moment where Saul deeply regretted his lifetime of disobedience, it was right there. But here comes the fulfillment of prophecy. Jonathan and his brothers die on the field of battle. This is told to us back in uh, 1 Samuel uh, 15, 27-28. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and it is given to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. You understand what that means for a kingdom to be torn away from a king? It means your sons are going to die. You'll notice that that was prophesied to Saul back in chapter 15. And he went on to reign over the kingdom for the next near 15 chapters, right? The kingdom was slowly torn away from Saul. But that's not what Samuel is saying, nor what is being prophesied to Saul. What's being prophesied is your sons are going to die and the throne is going to be left vacant. That's what it means for your kingdom to be torn away from you. It doesn't mean you're dying tomorrow. It means your sons are going to perish. All the sons that you've had Are also going to die. And then later in chapter 28, verse 19, it says this Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. That is Samuel speaking. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So at its very base, This is a direct prophecy that this is going to happen. Your sons are going to die. And we see here in verses 1 and 2, it's fulfillment. But second, what else do we see? We see a reversal of conquest. So we see, first and foremost, the fulfillment of prophecy. And now we also see a reversal of conquest. Look at verse 3. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly uh, wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, "Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me." But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, and when his armor-bearer saw that Saul had died was was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on the same day uh, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Now Saul presumably thinks that his armor bearer is going to take care of him in his death, so he asked him, why don't you go ahead and kill me, so that at the very least I'm killed by you and not these uncircumcised Philistines, and then the implication would be, after I'm dead, take my body and go bury it so that they can't mess with me. Now, Saul has been characterized by one thing, at least in this entire series, is that he does not trust anyone around him the last thing that he thinks is that this armor bearer is going to be faithful to Saul and be a true armor bearer and when he sees his master die he also falls on the sword and commits suicide which then enables the Philistines to come and mistreat his body the very thing that he did not want to take place took place But the important part of this passage is that this is a reversal of all the things that had happened up to this point in the Old Testament. This is a reversal of everything that had happened under Joshua. If you'll remember Joshua 23, 8-13, it says this, But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back, and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them, and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they will be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Remember, this is Joshua telling the nation of Israel, look, you show up on the battlefield and one man will put to flight a thousand. Why? Because it is the Lord who goes before you and He is doing the fighting. There is one thing, nation, that will undo that and that will cause the Lord no longer to fight for you. And you will see just how weak and pathetic your army actually is. And that is, if you turn your hearts away from the Lord your God and to foreign gods. If you no longer listen to the voice of the Lord your God and you turn away from Him, He will no longer drive out the enemies before you and they will overwhelm you. So what we are seeing here in this depiction of Saul dying, and thousands dead on the battlefield as the Philistines come and overtake the people of Israel. And not only that, but every man, woman, and child who witnesses the armies of the Lord die and then witnesses the king and all of his sons die too, they run and they take their families, they pack up all their possessions, and they leave and they give everything they have to the Philistines to dwell in. What is that? That is a reversal of everything that happened under Joshua. It's a reversal of the conquest. But not only that, it's a reversal of what's happened in this book. 1 Samuel 7 12 to 14. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin. "...and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, "'Till now the Lord has helped us.' So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel." The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. We're back where we started from, by the end of 1 Samuel. Everything that has been accomplished up to this point under the reign and judgment of Samuel, is now being undone because of this disobedient king who is killed on the battlefield. Now the Philistines have come back in and taken the territory that once belonged to Israel, gained under Samuel. But it's also a reversal of the conquest that David is accomplishing. Remember in the last chapter, David has gone to the Amalekites and has soundly defeated them so that he has taken all of their possessions back with him. David is out there on the outskirts running from Saul, hiding with the Philistines and winning battle after battle after battle. And the very next chapter, what do we see? But that his predecessor, Saul, is losing battle after battle after battle. All of the gains that David is making toward the Amalekites, the Amorites, all of the enemies of God is now being undone simply because of Saul's disobedience and his ultimate suicide. Now you have to understand when you read the Old Testament how Israel fares in the land, whether they have much land and are at peace with their enemies, or if they have little, it tells you what their relationship with the Lord is like. If they are pursuing idols and pursuing disobedience, you can bet that the land around them is shrinking as their enemies come in and take their territory. But as they gain land, as their land grows, and as they begin to have peace on all sides, it's as if the nation of Israel is moving back into the Garden of Eden. So here in this story, it's as if paradise has been lost and the serpent is moving in in the Philistines and is taking up residence in all of the places that Israel once had. Now, given David's story up to this point and all of the victories that he's earning, this book ends with utter despair as the Philistines move in and take up territory. But what the author is wanting you to see in just even the last chapter is that there is hope on the horizon because the Davidic king is about to take the throne. So you can expect, Israel, that all of those losses are going to now be gains when the person, the man, after God's own heart takes the throne. So we're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. We're seeing the reversal of conquest. But finally, we're seeing the reaping of covenant curses. The reaping of covenant curses. Look at verses 8 to 13. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carrying the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth-shan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, Saul is dead on the battlefield and the Philistines are combing the battlefield some 24 hours after the battle. And what do they stumble upon but the dead body of Saul? And they say, well, look what we found here. And so they decide to mutilate the body. They cut off his head, they take his armor, and they put it in the temple of, of their god, the Astaroth. They fa- They fasten it to the wall, and then they take his dead, headless body, and they fasten it to the wall of the city of Bet-Shien. It's one of those uh, pirates, ye be warned kind of Scenes where they fasten this body out there as a sign to all who would mess, to mess with us. Look at how impressive our God is, who has given us victory over the children of Israel. Ashtaroth is better than Yahweh. It's a proclamation to all who would seek to offend the Philistines. You need to understand our God is better because he, it triumphs over the God of the nation of Israel. And then what is Saul's body left to do? but be picked apart by the birds of the air. Now, in Deuteronomy 28, 25-26, we actually find this as one of the curses for disobedience to the covenant. Look at this. It says in 25, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air, for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. What Saul and the children of Israel are, are reaping here are all the covenant curses that Moses has promised as far back as Deuteronomy would come to them. But why will those covenant curses come to the children of Israel? Well, it's very simply put, if you go back to Deuteronomy 28, just 10 verses earlier in verse 15, he tells them in no uncertain terms, "...but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments..." and his statutes that i command you today then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you what was the reason for the covenant curses coming upon the nation of israel if you fail to do what the lord your god is commanding you to do all of these curses will come upon you well, what do we find in the book of first samuel 1 Samuel 12, 15, Samuel says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Verse Chapter 15, verse 19, Samuel is now talking to Saul. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Just a few verses later in verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Then if you flash forward to 24 hours before Saul's death, in chapter 28, verse 18, this is Samuel coming back from the dead, telling Saul one last thing, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Why was Israel reaping the covenant curses? Because they didn't listen and obey. It's as simple as that. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. Why was there such a tragic downfall from Saul here in 1 Samuel 31? Because he didn't listen and obey the voice of the Lord. Why did all of these things happen to him? Why did it happen to Israel that they had to leave and the the Philistines overtook their their territory? Because they didn't listen and obey the voice of the Lord. And now what has happened? I want you to see some parallels that are being drawn here by the author of this text from all the way back at the very beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. First, do you remember what happened at the very beginning when the sons of Eli decided, look, Hey, we 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 are losing in battle and we would really like to not lose. We would really like to win. And so here's what we got to do. We got to go get the good luck charm, which was the ark. Do you remember what the ark was? It's that little box that the presence of the Lord dwelt on. It was a special specially located presence of the Lord so the priests go and they haul this ark out to the battlefield so that the Lord can go before them and do the fighting. Do you remember that The Philistines defeat the Israelites because back then we saw that God would not be any man's good luck charm, which is essentially how Israel is treating him as just a good luck charm. So he allows the ark to get captured. And where does it go? Do you remember? Oh, it goes into the temple of Dagon. It goes into the Philistine temple. As a war trophy. Just like what's happening here to Saul's armor. It goes in as a war trophy into the temple. Why is Saul's body pinned to the wall? And why is his armor now in the temple as a war trophy? Because the nation of Israel said, God, we don't want you to fight for us. We want a king to go before us. And so now what do we see just 20 chapters later? You want a king to go before you? Here's your king pinned to the wall of a Philistine city with no head and all of his armor as a war trophy for the Philistines. But do you remember when the ark goes into the temple of the Philistines, do you remember what happens to the head of Dagon? The god falls over and his head breaks off and it rolls to the threshold. See, God always fights for his own name. And he is sure you understand that no God will make me a war trophy. But where is Saul? Pinned to the wall, his body has to be taken down and burned. Burning bodies is what pagans do. It's not what Jews, it's not what Christians even do what pagans do. So they take his body down and it has to be burned so that it will no longer be the war trophy. No gods defeated, no gods heads roll off. But do you remember in chapter 17 what happens when there's a Philistine? an uncircumcised Philistine who offends the armies of the living God. And there's this little shepherd boy who's a pest, who's delivering cheeses to the front lines where his brothers are. And he looks at this tall, uncircumcised Philistine and he says, who is this guy to defend the, ar- to offend the armies of the Lord? Do you remember what he does? He goes out to the field of battle with one stone and he smacks him in the forehead with it. He falls over and do you remember what he does then? He takes the giant's sword and he cuts his head off see, when someone in the book of 1 Samuel loses their head, it's a sign of God's displeasure with them. So here is Saul, dead on the battlefield, losing his head. A war trophy for all of Israel. Why? Because Saul was expected to listen to and obey the voices of the Lord or else reap the covenant curses. But here's where things turn. I would love to stand up here and give you an application like, therefore, don't be like Saul. Super easy, right, everybody? Listen to and obey the voice of the Lord. How far do you think that's going to go? See, it's unhelpful to have some sort of application like that because if what I laid before you is perfect obedience to God, how would you respond? I can't do that. Look, if we're being honest, when it comes to obedience of the Lord, especially right here in 1 Samuel, I'm a lot more like Saul than I am like David. That's for sure. I can look at my life, no matter how many hours you give me in that window, and I can see disobedience after disobedience after disobedience. I can see me turning back to the Lord and saying, I'm sorry yet again for those ways in which I continue. My heart continues to wander. My eyes continue to wander. My thoughts continue to wander. My mouth continues to wander. My actions continue to wander into disobedience. So if the application of this book was, therefore, don't be like Saul, I'm afraid Saul's guilty, Jonathan's guilty, his whole family's guilty, you and I are guilty, and as we're going to see in 2 Samuel, even David himself is guilty. How are the covenant curses not going to come upon the entire world for all of its disobedience. Well, when we get to the New Testament, Paul says to us in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? How? by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who, hang, who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So how is it that the covenant curses are not going to fall on me because of disobedience? How is it that my life actually has meaning when I close my eyes in death and open them in judgment? Because if I'm standing before a holy God after I die, I am in trouble. If all of my works are laid bare, positive works, good works that I think are good, and bad works and sins and all of those things are measured up, and they're not measured against the person standing next to me, to my left or to my right, but they're measured against a holy God, I'm in trouble. So how is it that the covenant curses... The curses for disobedience to God for failing to hear and obey his law doesn't fall on me. The only way is if someone bears my punishment for me. That's it. Otherwise, every single one of us in this room are doomed. So it matters when you ask the question, where is my life headed? What happens when I die? That question is ultimately meaningful. If nothing happens when you die, and you are worm food, then your life right now is utterly meaningless. Well, no, I want to hand off good things to my kids. Meaningless. Who cares? Your kids are going to die. They're going to forget you. I want to leave a legacy. Your legacy is not gonna last that long. There's like 10 guys in history whose legacy lasted longer than like 50 years after they died. There's not that many people, in other words. Compared to the number of people who live, legacy doesn't matter. Beyond that, who really cares if the earth's gonna just be destroyed anyway? What does it matter? How long does your legacy actually last? But if the Bible is true, what it tells us about the Gospel is true. That life is eternal. And that after this is over, you stand before a holy God facing judgment. Now all of a sudden, that question really does matter. If my life is eternal, now all of the decisions that I make from now until then actually do matter. It gives my life ultimate meaning. An ultimate purpose. You understand that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But I promise you, you will not come to truly worship God Until you have understood and you've actually felt the weight on your own soul of your sin. Once you have felt the weight of your own sin on your soul and you're carrying it around like it is a burden on your back. Once you have felt that weight and then you understand as the Bible is depicting the ultimate holiness of God which Saul now comes into grasp of for failing to obey and listen to. Once you understand the weight of your sin and then you see the magnitude of His holiness, then and only then, can you hear the words of Jesus as they are meant to be heard in Matthew eleven, twenty eight 28 to 30? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is easy is light. Christ Jesus has come to bear your burden of sin and disobedience. He has taken your punishment. And when you feel the weight of your own sin, and you see the holiness of God standing before you. How magnificent does that sacrifice look? So is he calling you? Because he says, my sheep, hear my voice, and I call them, and they come to me. And here He's asking you in Matthew, Come to Me. All who labor and are heavy laden, is that burden of sin on your back? Is the weight of obedience that Saul is feeling and the covenant curses that he is reaping, do you feel that too? Do you feel that burden? Because if you do, He is calling to you, Come to Me. You who labor in her heavily I will give you rest. So that now judgment day looks different for you. He's asking take your sin and trust him with it. Trust that he will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Trust that you can own it, you can confess it to him that He'll forgive you for it. Trust that you can come here with a clean heart and a clean conscience, not because you've never sinned, but because you realize the magnitude of your sin and you can stand before a holy God and you can praise Him and worship Him and revere Him and follow Him for the rest of your life. Why? Because the one that bore your covenant curses He's a holy and living God who fights for you. How comforting is that? How much hope is there in Christ for us? So for us that believe this passage, as sad as it is, as much as it reminds us of our own disobedience like Saul should now bring us to a point of celebration because this is our God who has seen us in despair, who knows that we, like Saul, are all like sheep who have gone astray. and Every single one of us will wander into disobedience. And instead of leaving us there and facing His divine wrath, He came and saved us from it. Turn to him in faith. Repent of your sins. Confess them to him. And trust in Jesus for salvation. This passage lifts high. The name of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy that you've given to us freely. We have not deserved it. We didn't do anything to merit it. And you gave it to us. Thank you. Thank you. For the blood of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.